0: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello and welcome to radio. I'm your host, Ray Weaver. And as I mentioned in the last broadcast, I'm traveling and I'm away from all of my uh, home recording equipment using a a podcast microphone they call it. So the quality might be a little different and because these shows are different, I'm foregoing theme music and all that stuff. I might sing a song or two here and there, but mostly it's just going to be me talking about my travels and rambles through my parents' home, my father's house and my mother's house, my childhood home, and my home later on in life as well as I move things out, find things unfortunately throw some things away, donate a lot to the church and different groups because we're going to sell the old place. Nothing like this is easy. And I've heard from so many people as I started this broadcast and started this uh, trip, sharing some of the stuff on social media and stuff that, um, that they've done it and it's never easy and it's not. In fact, it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. I'm actually staying in the old house alone right now while I do all of this, missing the sounds of my mother or my father rattling around in the house, missing my mom sitting there with me for breakfast. And uh, it's just me here. It's cold here in, in Maryland right now. And this old joint was always drafty and always chilly in the winter. And amazingly enough, really hot in the summer. So so it's a little cold and I wake up in the morning, make myself a cup of coffee, make myself some breakfast. And uh, I tell you, man, I hear things. I'm sitting here with my cell phone right next to me, recording into it, reading from it. There are no phones hooked up here. No TV, no cable, no internet. All of that stuff has been been let go to save some money. And um, I'm hearing a telephone ring somewhere. I'm not making it up, man. I'm hearing a telephone way off in the distance. And I walk all around the house and try to figure out where it's coming from. But it seems to be coming from everywhere and nowhere. I mean, I hear it, but you'd think I was crazy. So I won't talk about that. I was talking about my dad's uh, workshop the other day. Actually, I didn't talk about it here. I posted some pictures of it on social media. And my dad's workshop was an old shed. And the shed, the shed itself was the back of a truck, like an old container truck, a big one, a big truck. It wasn't a building. It was literally the the back end of the truck that he had hauled up into the yard and, uh, Still had the big metal doors that a, the back end of a truck has. And and that was his shed. He put everything in there. He had wood out there, tools, you name it. My dad had it out there. And he worked out there, too. He worked out there. Had a little workmate bench, a uh, couple of other ben- vise, all kinds of stuff out there. I found out today, I don't know why, but when I showed pictures, three, four people asked me if they could have my dad's old iron vise. I mean... I didn't realize that these were such a sought-after item, but there's a little bit of a debate going on over who's going to get it. So I'm cleaning out the shed, finding his old tools, pieces of wood, finding decades worth of old band equipment of my own, cables and old microphone stands, broken down pieces of stuff all piled in there, stuff that he had in there because they had an above-ground swimming pools. So hoses, pieces of an old pump, it's all in there and I'm taking it out piece by piece and uh, I'm finding stuff in that shed that just basically I don't know defines sections of my entire 66 years on this planet I mean it's time really to clean up these things my sisters are helping we're going to the church and we're going to junkyards and we're getting through it, it all. But I guess it' kind of my job to to go through the old tools and the assorted junk in the shed. You know, I uh, I went out back there, and I did just kind of open the doors to the shed and and stand there. I mean, the doors screeched because they haven't been opened for a while. I mean. They never made us weak when dad was around. He kept it oiled and he was out in the shed nearly every day. And I just kind of stood there for a moment among the hammers and the saws and the nails, torn down lawnmower engines, (laughs) half empty paint cans. I mean, all of this stuff is part of the essence of who my father was. He always had like, 20 projects going on at the same time that he was just about finished with, just about done, those projects. And there were most of them still in the shed, still just about finished. <laughs> I mean, you know, I got on with the business. It's, you got to do it, man. Threw a bunch of hand tools and boxes so my brother in laws could sort through them. Pulled out his old weed whacker. I know they're going to want it. It was back up in the corner. The weed whacker was up there. And I live overseas, so I can't take any of this tools and weed whackers and lawnmower stuff with me. I live across the ocean. But there, hidden in the corner, behind the weed whacker, was something that actually hadn't belonged to my dad. It was mine. And it binds me to my dad and the memories of my dad in a way that nothing else in this shed or pretty much anywhere else in the world ever could. It was a Louisville Slugger baseball bat. The white ash one. Now, dad had wrapped on the bottom, of course, black electrical tape. It was unraveling and cracked and peeling off. Scuff marks on the bat. I'm looking at it right now. I have it in my hand, in fact. There were scuff marks on the, you know, what we call the business side of the back, from the sweet spot all the way up to the handle, but none on the other side, on the Hillerich and Bradsby trademark side, because you know, everybody knows that if you hit on the trademark there, that's going to guarantee you a broken back. Going to guarantee it. Uh, right here, it's stamped 28 at the bottom. And it's hard to see, but it's been scraped away by, I don't know, thousands of times. That it was dragged across the sand of a Little League field or the asphalt of a playground somewhere. I started Little League Baseball with this bat. I guess I played with it for one or two seasons until I got bigger and the bat had to get bigger. But when I started Little League Baseball, I was you know, it took a while. But I came a pretty good I became a pretty good ball player. I loved baseball. But when I was seven years old, I'm trying to remember, six, seven years old, this twenty-eight ounce stick of wood was like, you know, Excalibur, man. But I suffered (laughs) from the most terrible curse that can afflict a small boy. I was afraid of the ball. I was afraid of the baseball. Like I said, I loved baseball. My whole family loved baseball. Even my extremely strict grandfather, who didn't like us to read the funny papers on Sunday, would let us listen to our beloved Baltimore Orioles on the radio. I wanted to play baseball. I had ached for the day when I would be able to join the league. The day I got my first baseball uniform, I'm sure there's pictures of it somewhere, I stood in front of the mirror and admired myself probably for hours on end, in those knickers and knee socks and the shirts that said, Rebels "rebels" on the front and Jubb's store on the back. I think my mom made the joke that I was going to wear out my uniform before I ever even got into my first game. My daddy gave me that bat before my first game. And man... I was just sure that I was going to be a superstar. I could hear the crack when I was going to just hit that first Little League pitch, launch it somewhere into the stratosphere, and serve notice to everybody on the field that I had arrived, baby. There was a ball player in your midst now. Because I'd always been a pretty solid Sandlock baseball player. But I think it was some... Trick of my November birthday that I wasn't playing little League with kids my own age. my birthday was was late in the year, so I wound up moving into the bottom of the age group above mine, and I was playing ball with boys that were two, three old years older than me and these guys, you know, there's a big difference between seven and ten years old when you're a kid, right? These guys were playing hard. They pitched hard, really hard. Some of them (laughs) could even throw the beginnings of a uh, early stage embryonic curveball. Unfortunately, not with much accuracy. And I think that was part of the problem. I mean, I, you know, I could hit. I did fine as long as the coach was just tossing fat ones at the plate during batting practice. But when the game started, it was a different story. I went from being one of the best hitters around my neighborhood to just cowering at the plate until three strikes were called. I mean, sometimes I hesitate to admit it because I'm not like proud of it even now. It's funny. Here I am, 66 years old almost like 60 years away from those moments and they still resonate inside my body like they happened yesterday. I can still feel it in my legs and in my the pit of my stomach, the, that fear and that embarrassment. You know, as I said, I was one of the best hitters and all of a sudden I'm literally bailing out of the batter's box on pitches that are coming right down the middle. I was convinced this ball was about to bean me in my head. I'm trying to remember, I'm not really sure back in those days, that we even wore batting helmets yet, so I'm not sure. My famous uh, Louisville slugger, it just never really left my shoulder during those early days. I began to suffer the ultimate boyhood indignity of outfielders moving in and yelling, easy out, easy out. They, you know, they weren't afraid of me. Whenever I stepped up to the plate, they moved in and just kind of played in the grass or whatever. Every game, every game I would sit in the back of the car, fight back the tears that I'm actually fighting back right now. And dad was always cool. He'd smile into the rear view mirror and say, don't worry. Don't worry, you'll get it next time. You'll get them next time. So it's going to be fine. But inside, I knew it just wasn't true. I was afraid of the ball. I started to hate baseball. I wanted to quit. I wanted to quit playing this game that I had loved and still loved my whole life. I'm trying to remember what day of the week it was. Maybe a Thursday. Let's say it was a Thursday. I don't know. Dad came home from work and he was tired, of course. My dad had a hard job. He worked for GM in the electromotive division, moving very large pieces of train engines around, working on them. Armature winder, wrapping I don't even know how many feet of wire around big metal generators. And it was hard work. When he came from work, he was tired. My dad was, but he here he was. What, what did we decide Thursday? Here, we, Thursday evening after work, four thirty-five o'clock in the afternoon. Last thing I would have expected at that moment was for him to say, "Grab your baseball bat and your glove." I was like, "Okay." I never pa- passed up a chance for to play catch with my dad or whatever. So he says, "Grab your bat and your glove," and we go out in the backyard and uh, tossed the ball around a little bit. Like I said, no big deal. We did it all the time. And so dad, you know, my dad was a taciturn man. he'd not a big talker, very quiet, unless he was working on something around the house. And then he taught us an entirely new vocabulary and the entire neighborhood, but that's another story. But he was a very quiet man. He said, so how's it going at the plate? And I'm like, what do you mean? How's it going? You know how it's going. I stink. Dad, no, you don't stink. You're actually a good hitter. You're just afraid of the baseball. Man. I was outraged. I am not. I am not afraid of the baseball, Dad. Yes, you are, Raymond. And that's Okay. It's even smart to be a little afraid. That'll save your ass. We just got to find a way to get you over being so afraid that you won't stay in the in the batter's box. And he said, here, throw me the ball as hard as you can. So dad had his glove on. He was pretty fair with it. So I didn't think anything of it. I threw the ball, whipped it at him as hard as I could. He dropped his glove, quickly stood up and let the ball hit him right in the chest. <laughs> he winced a little bit, said, Well, good arm, good arm. That one stung. Do it again. And I'm like, No, man. <laughs> I'm stunned that he let the ball hit him and even more upset that he wants me to throw the baseball at him again. I looked at him and I'm like, No way. No way. I'm not going to do that. And he said, Ray. I said, throw the ball. Now, I know this will come as a shock to some younger listeners, maybe. But boys in those days did as they were told, no matter how bizarre it might seem, the thing that their parents wanted. So I kind of tossed a, you know, just a soft one in his general direction. He picked it up and threw it back at me as hard as he could and said, I said, throw the ball hard. So... It was my dad. He was telling me to do something. So I let it fly. But this time, instead of letting it hit him, he dropped it to the ground and the ball sailed up and hit the side of the house, which, of course, probably got my mom hanging out of the kitchen window looking at us and frowning, not really happy because we had um, those good old asphalt shingles from back in the day. So I remember at that time, the house was painted like a barn red. My house was a lot of colors over the years. But I think, I think we were at the barn red stage. So whenever the asphalt shingles would get cracked underneath, you'd have this white shining out through the red. Um, anyway, see, and so he's like, he, he says, see, I let one hit me and it stung a little, but it didn't kill me. I kept my eye on the other one, Raymond. It never even touched me. I've been watching you. I've been watching you. My dad was a coach on my baseball team, Uh, not the main coach, but he was one of the coaches. He said, you close your eyes for just a, a split second whenever the pitcher throws the ball, so you don't know where it's at, and then you get scared of it hitting you. So now watch and just keep your eye on the ball. Now, I'm afraid that what I'm about to recount to you will cause some modern-day child psychologist, parent helicopter, submarine folks a little heart palpitation. So I'm giving one of those disclaimers they give. You know, it's not modern. It's not new. And yeah, it's a bit my dad. But... All I can tell you is relax, enjoy. It was one of the best lessons I ever learned. Yep, my dad threw the baseball right at me. He took away my glove and my bat and threw that Rawlings at me as often as it took. It was never really hard. It was never too fast, but it was hard enough and fast enough that if I didn't get out of the way, it stung like heck when I didn't get out of the way. And sometimes I didn't get out of the way because that was the point. It stung. It hurt, but it didn't kill me. I didn't die. And I'm not about to belabor the obvious analogy here about dealing with life and stuff coming at you and learning how to duck and (laughs) learning how to take your hits when they come. You can figure that one out on your own. What I learned that day, all I learned that day was how to stay in the batter's box and keep my eye on the damn baseball. Yeah, okay, some of you could say it was nuts to throw a baseball at a small boy, but my dad knew it hurt me much more and it was much harder on me to constantly fail. It's something that I love so much and wanted so much to be a success at. That hurt more than any little sting from a baseball. He had no intention of hurting me, you know. He was teaching me. And he was a man that believes sometimes hard lessons can only come the hard way. Again, His methodology maybe doesn't pass muster in these more enlightened times, but let me simply put it to you this way. It worked. It worked. By the time I got my bat back that evening, he was throwing it. He was throwing the ball, and I was hitting it all over the backyard. And as I mentioned, the old red barn-colored shingles had some cracks in them to prove that. I miss those shingles. I really do. They were probably dangerous, made out of asbestos or something that's incredibly toxic. But the, you know, the uh, vinyl siding that's on this old house just doesn't have the same personality as those old shingles did. So back to baseball and all things baseball. And this little bat right here. I think I want to remember it this way. I don't know, but I want to remember that at the very next game on the very first pitch, I swung and I launched that ball. Now, it didn't quite make it into the stratosphere, man, but it probably just went over the second baseman's head by about an inch. But when all of the dust cleared, I was standing on the first base. I had hit a single. I looked for my dad along the bench and he smiled. Nothing that I have ever accomplished since that time has made me as proud as that little bloop single up the middle. Nothing. So I have to finish cleaning out all of this stuff and and I also have to finish up giving the tools and whatever to my brother-in-laws. But more importantly, <laughs> I have to figure out how the hell I'm going to take a 28-inch baseball bat back to Denmark because it's going. This baseball bat is definitely going to go back to Denmark. The shed, you know, it just ties me to the old man in in, in so many ways. He was a, he was a working man. And as such. We sometimes didn't have a lot of money, you know, for repairs. And we had to fix things and we had to keep them going until they probably should have been long hauled off to the nearest junkyard. But he found a way to make, make things work and never much worried about whether we had the exact tools or not because, you know, we did. I remember I had a problem with my car, the 1968 Chevrolet station wagon. It was well past its, uh, <laughs> shelf life. By the time I got it in 74, 75, it had been road harp and put up wet by my, my father's brothers, but I bought it from my uncle. It was my first car. And, um, I brought it home. <laughs> I love being at this old house, man. I love being. We're sitting, the house sits, it's the end lot. It sits on the edge of the, of the waterfront. It's not waterfront property. It's what they euphemistically call water view property. I think I've explained before that if it's fall, all the leaves have fallen, and you turn your head exactly the right direction, you can get a glimpse of the cove down there about a quarter of a mile away. But it's water view property. And, um, so it sits on the edge of, of a local woods here, the, the, the wooded area. It's the last house on the street. And, um, so I got this car from my uncle. I don't remember what I paid for it. It wasn't much, but it was back in 73, 74. My very first car I paid, let's say 500 bucks for it. I don't know. And, um. I think I know. I'd definitely paid, and I paid it in installments. I paid it like monthly to help, to pay it off. My uncle was helping me out. So I brought it home. Man, I was just. I had a car, and not only that, I'm a musician. I have a car. It's a station wagon. I can put gear in there. On road trips, I can put a little mattress back there. It was heaven. I had a car. So. I bring it home, and like I said, we're at the end of our little street. There's only three houses on our little street down here. And we're on the edge of the little woods, little forest there. And it's a little, say, 12 20% downhill grade into the little forest behind the house here. So I pulled up and parked in front of the house. We didn't have a driveway. It was parked in front of the house. I come inside. I get on the phone because I know, again, it's hard to explain to some of the younger people, but there was no such thing as cell phones or car phones. If you wanted to talk on the phone, you actually had to use something that hung on a wall or sat on a table. It's bizarre, I know, but there you go. I come in the house, and our phone hung on the dining room wall, long cord my mom loved her long phone cord, man. And I get on the phone and more than likely, I don't remember, but more than likely, I'm calling my girlfriend at the time and telling her, hey, babe, I got a car. (laughs) I have a car. And I was like, man, king of the world. So I'm talking to her on the phone and we're talking about making plans, what we're going to do on the weekend now that I have a car. No gas money, but I have a car. And I hear this kind of strange, whooshing, crashing sound. It's kind of hard to describe. It wasn't really like a crash. It's more like a whoosh and a A rustle, a very loud rustle, like an elephant in Africa charging out of the bush or whatever. Not that I've ever heard that, but give you some context if you've seen it in a movie. So I had no idea what it was. And I looked out the dining room window to the street and my car was gone. My car was gone. My car that I had just got was not there. It was no longer in the spot where I had left the car a scant three, five minutes ago. So I don't even know if I hung up the phone, but I know I jumped off the phone, ran out the door, thinking someone had stolen my damn car. So I'm looking up the street, you know, looking up our little hill there, our little grade, because if someone stole the car, they were certainly going to drive out that way. They were going to drive up the road, not to the end there where we lived because there was a woods down there and they can't get out that way. So I'm looking up and I can't see any sign of anything or anybody. There are no neighbors out and about to tell me whether someone just took off with my beautiful 1968 Chevrolet station wagon. I'm just totally baffled. It's gone. My car is gone. And then for some reason... I turned my head and looked toward the woods. And there at the bottom of the ravine, about maybe a hundred yards, maybe further 200 yards down at the bottom of the ravine that fell off after our property line, in the stream at the bottom of the ravine, sat my 1968 Chevrolet Wagon. Now, There was a little path, a tiny path, that all of us kids had made crossing through the woods there, going over to the other side of the neighborhood. The the neighborhoods were separated. We lived in Magity Beach. The one on the other side of the ravine and the little wood patch here was called Chelsea Beach. And we had, of course, friends on both sides. So there was a little path, maybe, I want to say, three, five feet wide dirt path worn by sneakers and bikes and keds and we used to go through that path but that's it it was a path maybe that wide on either side of that path were trees some relatively decent sized trees as well my car had somehow managed to miss every one of those trees and follow all the way down to the bottom of the ravine and it was now sitting in the stream. I have no idea to this day what law of physics was broken to get that car all the way down the bottom of that hill. Now, and mind you, without a scratch on it, not that it would have been too obvious because there were already a lot of scratches on it, but not from this particular misadventure. But there I am, I'm standing at the top of the hill. My car is sitting at the bottom of the hill. And I'm like, what in the hell am I going to do? So, of course, I go down and I try to back it out. And it was sitting in a stream, about six inches of water, muddy bottom. So, of course, all I did was sink the car further into the stream. The car was embedded into the stream bed. I mean, I think I might have got it like six inches, maybe a foot out of the stream, but the back wheels were just sinking further and further and further and further into the mud. So I'm baffled. (laughs) So I go over to my uncle's house next door. He lived next door. My dad had sold his brother some of the property that we owned down here for nothing because he was his brother. So he... He could go over to my uncle's house and I, and the one, he's the one who sold me the car. Yeah, that uncle. And I said, uncle Arthur, I, I have a problem. And if you think my dad was taciturn, I mean, uncle art was one of those guys that, uh, the popular phrase at the time wouldn't say crap if he had a mouthful and he was that guy. So he's like, what? I said, there's a problem with the car what's wrong with the car? Like, well, no, 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 it's nothing wrong with the car. You know, no, the car was fine. I'm like, no, it's nothing wrong with the car mechanically, but would you come and help me? Yeah. So (laughs) we go over and I show him where the car is. And he just looks at me. He said, how in the hell did you get that car down there? And I was like, I didn't get it down there. I didn't drive it down there. I don't know how it went down there. It just drifted down the hill and wound up in the stream. And he's like, you didn't put it in park. When you parked it, you left it in neutral. You did not put that car in park. And of course, I I lied and said, oh, yes, I did. I did, but I didn't. First thing I noticed when I got down to the car to try to back it out of there is that I had not put it in park. It was sitting in neutral. I was a new driver, okay? Give me a break. So here it is. It's buried in the mud. My uncle gets his work truck. He tries to pull it out with me, you know, backing it out, you know, bang, just pushing, uh, in reverse as hard as I can. And he get no, we got ropes. We got chains. We got pulleys. We got nothing, nothing. It took a professional wrecker and a professional to get that car out of there. And we got it out and I paid for it. Dad paid for it. I don't remember. Dad, was just amazed that I could do something quite this uh, dumb. So we get it out. I bring it up in the backyard. I wash the mud off, get it nice and clean. And there you go. like I said, no outward signs of damage, none. So I just started driving the car. Started driving the car and Never really thought much about it. It was a funny story to tell people. (laughs) People just thought it was hysterical. I'd show them where it went in. And I'm driving around. And then after a certain amount of time, this little clacking noise starts to develop. Just a little clacking sound. Very subtle. Subtle. But as time went on, it would get louder. Clack, 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 Didn't matter what gear I was in, didn't matter what I was in. The only place it didn't have one was in reverse. If I was driving that car and moving forward, there was a clacking sound. Clack, 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 clack. It would just get louder and louder. It got really loud. It was embarrassing to drive the car, especially if I was in town in between buildings and there was echoing. And people were just looking at me like, what in the hell? I mean, this was a constant clack, clack. Well, it turned out that the misadventure actually had in some way shifted the transmission and the motor mounts and all of that undercarriage stuff just enough that... The actual functioning of driving the car was causing the flywheel that translates the information from the shifter to the engine, caused the flywheel to crack. And what I was hearing was the flywheel disintegrating, literally falling apart in the car. And of course, the day came when it stopped working. The whole thing just stopped working. And we didn't know what was wrong, my dad and I. We didn't know. No one, but we figured because the car ground when I tried to put it in gear after the flywheel had completely disintegrated itself, we figured that there was a transmission problem. So my dad said, we have to get a new transmission. Now it's December. It's December. It's holiday season. I have a broken down car. <laughs> I have a broken down car. Broken down car in holiday season means no Christmas parties, no mistletoe, no girlfriend, no nothing. I'm freaking. I got no money for a transmission at this point. I just, you know, broke. And uh dad says, Well, we'll go get you a transmission at the junkyard. I'm sure we can find one. And um, we'll pick it up and that'll be your Christmas present. And I'm like, a, Chris, a transmission for Christmas. And I man, I jumped that. I'm like, yeah, great. Great. You know, that that's going to be awesome. Uh, well, we didn't use the phrase awesome back then. And I'm actually quite ashamed. I just used it right now, but anyway, it will be great. So we, um, we go to the junkyard. My dad haggles a decent price for whatever the transmission. I don't know what he got it for. I never asked. It was my Christmas present. Remember? Old, oily, nasty transmission. And that's my Christmas present. And now that, you know, he's bringing it home in his truck. And he says, well, we'll put it in today. We'll put it in this afternoon. I was like, Dad, it's Christmas Eve. He said, that's right. I'm off work. I've got the time today. That's the deal. Take it or leave it. So I took it. <laughs> so we pull up in the backyard. With We got my station wagon up there. It's already sitting back there amongst all of the other cars that were sitting back there. And it's sitting there and uh, it's cold. And we have to get this old transmission out and then put the new transmission in. Now remember, the problem wasn't with the transmission, it was with the flywheel on the transmission. Fortunately, the transmission that we we got came with a, fly, a new flywheel. So we dropped the old transmission, which was a relatively simple process. You know, you get in there, it's four, eight bolts, and you... Uh, now, remember, this is my dad we're talking about here. We have no lifts. We have no jacks. We have nothing under the car. He's not going to stop doing a job simply because he doesn't have the right tools. That just doesn't make any sense. He's gonna get the job done. He's a busy man. There's stuff on TV he has to <laughs> watch. So we uh we just drop the old transmission, you know, risking life and limb, because it's literally gonna fall down. Once the drive shaft is taken off, it's literally gonna fall down on the ground. And uh that's exactly what happens. Take the bolts off, make sure, boom, dropped. Cold Maryland ground December. Colder than your wife's feet and your back. Man, it was cold. I'm laying down there. He's laying down there. Get it down. Now, I said, relatively simple process assisted by gravity. Now we gotta get the new transmission up to where we can bolt it in. And of course, during this whole process, we pieces of the old flywheel are just literally falling out. Chunks of metal, big ones, small ones. And he's like, ah, gosh, you know, the flywheel is busted up. So that means there are shards of metal throughout the entire system. This adds an extra layer of making sure everything's cleaned out, making sure all the pieces of metal are out of the pan. Just a whole extra level of fun and frolic in 27 degree Maryland weather. But we go through all of that. We realize it was a flywheel problem. And we probably have a good transmission here. More on that in another story. So, Because believe me, once the old man realizes he's got a good transmission, he's not throwing it away. It's not going anywhere. And um, so now we have to get the new transmission and flywheel up to where it needs to be. And again, no jacks, no lifts, nothing like equipment that would make this a job that anyone could do. We had nothing. So, but we did have, well, we didn't have nothing. We had the old transmission and we had a two by four and we had some books. Now, let me explain this to you. My dad says to me, he says, Ray, go get me those A and P encyclopedias that we have in the shed. And I'm like, what? Go go get the books. That those that that set of A and P supermarket. You know, used to be used to be able to go to the supermarket, and if you bought enough groceries or got enough stamps or something, I don't remember what, you could get a volume of an A&P encyclopedia, maybe encyclopedia Britannica made it. I don't, I don't know who made it, but there it was. And he said, so go get me uh, the books. And I'm like, dad, why do we need books to put in a transmission? He's like, just do what I ask you to do. And as I mentioned earlier, boys in those days did what their dads asked them to do. So I went out to the shed and I Got the, Found the box that had, I don't know, 10, 12 AMP encyclopedias in there, you know, A to C or, you know, uh, devil to uh, elephant, however they were marked. Red, as I remember, the leather at bound books. I brought them over to him. And now you have to kind of picture this in your mind. My uh, particular role in this job, whether I chose to accept it or not, was to lie on the ground while my dad, using the aforementioned piece of lumber and the old transmission, which we had rode over to the side of the car by this time, as sort of a fulcrum, he lifted the new transmission little by little, using the, the board, the two by four, as a lever, the old transmission as his point there. He would lift it up ever so slightly by leaning on it. And I would, underneath the car, slide one of the encyclopedia volumes in underneath of the new transmission. yeah that's exactly what we did inch by inch laborious lift by laborious lift he'd lean on it the transmission would go up just a little bit more I'd slide another book under lean on it slide another book on as it got a little bit further up in the air we would take some paving bricks and you know lift that end of it front end up a little bit more another book By a certain time, you could get a cinder block under the back end, right? On and on we did this, learning the principles of leverage. And I have to tell you, as was often the case with what seemed like my dad's insane, somewhat harebrained schemed, worked like a charm. (laughs) God threatened transmission right up to where we could bolt it right back up to the engine, drive shaft back in. and uh, it worked. It worked. And now, the books that the encyclopedias also got soaked with uh, transmission fluid. And my dad, again, being the kind of guy who didn't waste anything, we use those transmission fluid soaked books in the wood stove as some sort of fire starter thing pretty much all winter long now we of course live in more enlightened times now, and you don't burn things like that in a wood stove inside a home where toxic fumes can escape you just don't you just don't do that, you know f- fumes escaping all over the place, I'm sure we all suffered some sort of ill effects from it but these were different times we were not wealthy people and my dad just didn't waste things i would like to say now i would like to tell you that that transmission job and and putting everything back together and everything it worked forever but it it really didn't it would work for a certain length of time but because something had happened to the undercarriage of the of the car when it went down in the forest. I think maybe one of the motor mounts was off by a certain bit, half inch, whatever. The flywheel would once again begin to chew itself up after a certain period of time. And uh, once I started hearing that that telltale, tap, 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 tap. Uh, some months, maybe a year down the road. I knew what it was this time, and I knew that I did not want to go through that experience again. So I junked the car somehow or another, bought another one, actually was working, had a job and could sign a car loan, and so I got a used piece of something. But I loved that old station wagon. Uh, That station wagon, when it was running, carried me a lot of places and you know we started to get eight track tapes and cassette decks and everything in our cars by this time and you could for the first time pick your own music you know you could pick your own music you weren't at the mercy of what they were playing on the radio or whatever dj had in the mind you know you 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 could pick your own stuff and that was pretty pretty heady stuff Uh, that was amazing really that was Wow. You mean if I want to hear, I don't know, Take It Easy by the Eagles or an old Beatles tune, all I have to have is an eight track or a cassette of that song and I can play it whenever I want to. I can make mixtapes of my own stuff. Pretty wonderful times, if I do say so myself. But Now you do remember, I know some of you do remember eight track tapes. Weren't they just a lovely Format to listen to music on. You know, even though they were called eight tracks, you had four tracks, and the songs would be loaded on in such a way that the tracks would change and often change in the middle of a song to go into the next track, and then the next track, and the next track. And if they got old enough, then they would start to bleed over. So you could hear the main song you were listening to playing while somewhere. In the distance a ghost of some song on the next track or the track after that would start playing as well absolutely zero fidelity but it was liberating and i don't know about where where you lived but wow wow some local guys in our area they figured out how to bootleg these things because there were for a while eight track recording machines where you could literally record eight tracks and some local guys were definitely bootlegging the, the the popular stuff of the day, and they were uh, bootlegging live stuff. So I had a rather interesting collection of 8-track material until I switched over to cassettes, which were of marginal better quality. You could get a lot more music on a cassette. And the fun part about a cassette is when you played it those two or three times that it played all the way through. And then, you know, you would try to get it out of the car deck and it would come streaming out like Christmas ribbon. And <laughs> there was basically nothing you'd do to rescue that, except maybe cut it off and try to fix it. Now, I actually, because I was in radio, have a little bit of experience at splicing tape so I could kind of splice my tapes back together and make them last a little bit longer than the average... Cassette. And the thing that ties everything up to what we're doing here is that as I go through my parents' house, I'm finding boxes and boxes and boxes of old cassettes. Cassettes from my old bands, of course, pre recorded cassettes of country music, rock music, Boston, the Eagles, Black Sabbath, Grand Funk Railroad, Bob Dylan. They're all here, boxes and boxes of them. There's an entire two-box set filled of about 12 cassettes in each box of live Bruce Springsteen stuff from the early parts of his career. And as I said, I honestly don't know what I'm going to do with all of this stuff. I have no idea. I'm thinking that while I'm here, I'm going to go find somebody with a cassette player you know, maybe a old stereo cassette machine. And at the very least, play a lot of the band music and songwriting demos and stuff that I have here, the box of that, and play those into my computer and at least preserve that music. I mean, I would hate to just take and dump it. It would It would just destroy me to just dump this large part of my life that my mom bless her heart, who was my biggest fan, saved so much of it. She saved posters from just about every show we ever gave. Pictures, tickets, handbills, old band cards. I found the band card from my very, very first band from back mid-60s. The band was called Light Rain. Light Rain was the name of the band. The card says, Light Rain, Folk Blues, and it has the, the name of my partner, John, and myself, and our phone numbers. That was our very first visit card, our very first band card. And the thing about it was I made that band card in school, in my print shop class. And I think it may be the only living example of that that is out there. And the funny thing, slight <laughs> rain. Never played a gig because there were two people in the band. John played drums and sang, and I played guitar. That was the band. And uh, we never had a gig. I, I think we practiced in my mother's kitchen or right here in, in, in this back porch where, I, where I'm sitting recording all of this, maybe five, six times, maybe more. And then I made the band card as my school project, and that was pretty much the history of Light Rain. Ah, but what a band it was. <laughs> we we did a pretty good version. Well, see, the name of the band, of course, was Light Rain. So we did a lot of songs about rain. Have you ever seen The Rain by Creedence Clearwater Revival? Rhythm of the Falling Rain? Our sets were heavy on songs that referenced rain because we thought that that was a, a good gimmick. Boys and Bands. It was a thing. I'm recording this on February 9th, which is an amazingly important day in my life. Because on February 9th back in 1964, that was the first time that I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. The Beatles introduced on the Ed Sullivan show to all of America that night. We were with my parents over visiting some of their friends and they had children about our age, myself and my two sisters. They have uh, two girls, three girls that were roughly in the same age group. And we wanted to see this. We wanted to see it. It had been the talk of the town. People were talking about it on the radio and people were like, Ed Sullivan is going to be playing this group that's so crazily popular in Europe and the Beatles, you know, you could see the film footage on the news of them landing, I guess, in New York and uh, the plane and the girls screaming up against the fence. And it was just uh, traffic being blocked outside their hotel. So we were anticipating this, like the people that were in my age group of eight, nine, ten years old. So we 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 gathered around the little black and white TV. And. Sullivan on probably Topo Gizio and other plate spinners or something. And then there they were. There they were, these four young men. And they were playing music like I had never heard anything like it before. And yeah, I think a lot of it, I think the joy that they projected, the happiness, the fun, the sense of cheekiness that they projected in february just so many so few months after the assassination of president kennedy i think that that happiness just helped lift a lot of the country out of the doldrums that that we had been feeling out of the sadness that had just been so oppressive that long winter but for me it was a life changing moment. Had that not happened, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Because that led me into music and into radio. And in, I, I stopped wanting to be, um, you know, I, I stopped wanting to replace Brooks Robinson at third base. And I, I all of a sudden, I wanted to be a rock and roll star. I wanted girls to scream at me. I wanted to play in bands. And I did. And I did. And then through that, Thinking that radio, being on radio where they played records might be an easier way to um, to make it into the music business. I started listening to DJs and started to get to know a lot of DJs and a lot of talk show guys. And the two things have always run parallel in my life and in my mind. And all of it still right here in this house. I found my radio ticket, pictures from old radio stations I worked at. Stuff that I, I had long ago thought was gone. Here my parents had held on to all of it. And all these memories are here as I move through my parents' house. And I'll tell you about more of them here on radio in the weeks to come as, as we close this whole place down and get ready to sell it and deal with the realtors and the house flippers and everybody that's trying to make a quick buck and trying to make us you know, sign on the dotted line. I'll tell you about them, too. My name is Ray Weaver. This is radio. I do this show as a podcast and a broadcast. You can find my podcast anywhere that you listen to those things. My book is called A Father's Heart. It's available at Amazon. My music's out there to find and on the typical streaming and downloading platforms. I hope to see you here next time. Thanks for listening. This is radio.